Today's episode of Access Utah was first broadcast in April of this year. If you have any comments, you can email us at upraccess at gmail.com, and we'll read your comments at the beginning of the next episode. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Yoga is growing in popularity in the U.S. There were 36 million practitioners in 2016. By the way, that's 9% of the population, up from 20 million in 2012. 28% of Americans have participated in a yoga class at some point in their lives. We're going to talk about yoga, past, present, and future on the program today. Our guests include Emily Perry, who's Director of Yoga Studies at uh, USU. Welcome uh, to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, Chantal Gerfen, uh, owner of Transcend Yoga Studio in Logan. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Uh, we have Jennifer Siner, USU professor of English, who's been practicing yoga for some 20 years. Thanks. Thank you. And Michael Sauter, poet, USU professor of English, affiliated faculty member in USU's Religious Studies program and its Yoga Studies program, where he teaches a course on the history of yoga. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, so I'm learning things. I, I didn't know we had a yoga studies program at USU. <laughs> uh, Jennifer, I didn't know you practiced <coughs> yoga, although I've talked to you a couple mm-hmm. times on, on the air. So I'm learning things. I, I want to um, maybe just start with a general question. I have been noticing, I think a lot of people notice, more people carrying around their yoga mats, uh, wearing the yoga pants. Um, that's the proper description. Um, so I think anecdotally, we all can see yoga is getting more more popular. Is that what you're seeing? Maybe start with you. Yes, absolutely. I started teaching yoga classes at Utah State about uh, 10 or more years ago, and there were only two sections of yoga classes offered. And now we have, I think, 16 sections in each semester, and they are all full. So Hmm. it has grown rapidly in the last decade. Yeah. Uh, Michael Sauter, why? Why? Why increase popularity? Gosh, um, I think there's a lot of reasons. I first got into yoga back in the late 1970s. Um, I was trained as a yoga teacher back then and um, taught a lot of classes. But, uh, you know, in general, people barely knew the difference between yoga and yogurt back then, you mm-hmm. know. And right. So, but, and so it's been fun for me over these decades just to see its growing popularity. And um, we can talk, I guess, a little bit later about how yoga has changed over the years. But I just think there's uh, more interest in uh, health these days and a lot of interest in staying fit. And there's a lot of interest in uh, stress reduction. And, uh, you know, we all have heard of mindfulness and meditation. And so yoga is kind of a meditation you do with your body. Mm-hmm. And so there's just lots of emotional, spiritual, uh, physical benefits that you get from yoga. And I think it's just catching on. Yeah. I want to go around the room and ask how you got into yoga. Jennifer Siner, been at it for about 20 years. How, why did you? Well, I first yoga? started, my very first class was actually in Ann Arbor when I was a graduate student. So that was like 1999. But then I came here in 2000, starting out as an assistant professor. And actually, I went with um, another brand new assistant professor, Jen Peoples, who's in communication studies. And we actually went and practiced with, at that time, the only one I knew of that was teaching yoga in town, and that was Denise Gackstetter. And she taught downtown. In fact, we used to meet very early on in the middle school in the gymnasium there. And um, that's where I began my practice. And then more recently, I became a certified yoga instructor. I actually um, certified under Chantel. 
And I just made that move because I wanted to deepen my own practice and learn more about the path because, of course, it's not just about the physical postures. And then as soon as you start to deepen into the practice, you realize that so much of the practice is about then returning that and serving and um, giving back what you've received. And so then I started teaching yoga as well. Mm, all right. Shotel Gurfin, uh, how did you get into, into yoga? Mine was sort of the opposite. I was a runner and I had some injuries that were occurring. And so I went to like Lady Fitness to do my first yoga class. So it was very like untraditional at a gym. And I remember walking out of my first class and I was like, the sky is so much bluer. The green grass is like causing me tears. And I didn't understand like what had happened over the past 60 minutes. And so after that point, I was like, I have to know more about it. Mm. So within six months, I had found a teacher training and um, just like dived right into it. And it's been part of my life. She's like 16 years now. So, All right. Yeah. Uh, Emily, uh, how'd you get into yoga? Well, I started practicing seriously when when I was a young mother and I, I was looking for a way to uh, get a little bit of physical movement just from home. So I actually started my practice in my living room mm -hmm. with an old Iyengar textbook. <laughs> and um, initially I thought that it was just gonna be a physical outlet and I quickly realized that it was way more than that. And I started uh, coping with, you know, the stresses of, of motherhood so much, you know, with so much more ease and grace. And I, you know, just like everybody else, I started feeling this call to share what I what I had learned. So I started seeking out teachers to study with, and um, it's just been developing ever since. Hmm. So. Michael Souter, maybe I could start with you on, on the next question. I was fascinated. So Jennifer Siners said that talked about this is more than postures, right? Mm -hmm. um, and she talked about the path. Um, tell me about the path. The path. Okay. <laughs> well, there's a lot of yogic paths today. Yeah. <clears throat> so um, yoga in the West has really proliferate, proliferated into lots of different varieties. So, um, you know, there's Bikram yoga and there's, uh, I mean, even things like goat yoga where you do yoga with goats. And there's wine yoga and beer yoga. Mm -hmm. And Jennifer and I were in California recently and there was a Saturday, Saturday morning wake and bake yoga where you're supposed to come stoned, you know, to class. So, uh, so you know, there's not like one yoga path. But well, um, me, I have to yeah. back up. Yoga with goats. What? It's, it, just have goats around? I've never seen it, but I've seen okay. photographs. You know, people in yoga poses with okay. a goat on with their the, back. With a goat on their back. On their back. Yeah. And wow. So, <laughs> okay. So there's stuff like that going on. There's yeah. paddleboard yoga. Yeah. There's all sorts of kinds of yoga. But traditionally, you know, yoga was a, a spiritual practice. And uh, for a couple thousand years, it was really focused on meditation and practices to lead to enlightenment. And the yoga postures actually came into the tradition of yoga in the medieval period, around 1000, something like that, mm. and then really took off around the uh, 17th century. And um, But we can talk more about the history of yoga if you want to. Mm. But anyway, so yoga, there are a lot of different styles. And so I would say there are a lot of different paths mm -hmm. of yoga. But um, you can practice yoga just as a health and fitness kind of practice. Um, but like everybody has said, you start to notice these really other positive effects as well. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you feel happier. There's science that studies what the mind does on yoga and, um, you know, how it increases feelings of well-being, it reduces stress, and it uh, helps you deal with emotions better, 
And so uh, this is this is all the path. And then if you have a spiritual uh, orientation, that it's also a spiritual path as well. So. Mm-hmm. Um, wanted to, uh, maybe to ask each of you, you know, this Jennifer, you you talked about the path. Well, I would just add on to what Michael said to say that as a teacher, when I'm teaching yoga, one of the things that we do is we talk about um, the way you're practicing on your mat is the way you're going to live your life. So the kindness you bring to your body, the generosity you bring, the compassion that you bring to your own physical practice, your asana practice, then translates to how you meet the world. And so in that way, I think it can be really transformative if you learn to be really present in a physical pose, if you learn to breathe and to focus on your breathing, um, then I think you can start to widen those moments so it's not just the 60 minutes in class. Maybe that um, attention, that intention lasts beyond class. Maybe it's another hour, maybe it's two hours, to the point where ideally you're practicing yoga 24 hours a day, Mm -hmm. even though only 60 minutes Mm -hmm. is physically on a mat. You have that experience of being intentional and um, compassionate throughout the day. Mm. Uh, Emily Perry, does that resonate with you? This. Oh, absolutely. I love every, everything that she said about it. Um, yeah, the path is, um, you know, it can be a structured sort of path or lineage of yoga, but it can also be fluid. You know, I feel like the path is actually a process and that you might come to yoga for one reason and then that reason might change as as you practice and as you you know continue through your life and your life situation changes but it's always it's it's always available as something that extends beyond what you do physically on the mat Mm. and that the path itself is is it starts to develop into everything that you do Mm. Chantal Gerfin same question about the path and and about extending beyond just the 60 minutes. Of course. What's very cool is um, at the studio, we see a lot of different like ages of people and different levels of people that come in. And to see like a brand new student coming in, it's very, it's physical to them. They're like, they're usually coming for like stretch or, you know, something of that sort. And then as you watch people come back and back and back, it becomes you know, like they're talking about like, oh, well, I noticed this about my breath or I noticed this about a physical posture or I'm becoming, you know, a better student. I'm sleeping better. Like all of these, it's a path for each person as they progress. Mm. And it's through the physical, I think, movement of your body and understanding, you know, your mind and your breath and how it communicates with each other in this bigger scheme of things because we're so pulled in so many directions nowadays. It really Mm. gives people like an anchor to anchor to and then build upon that. Mm. Why do people, uh, I guess in general, come come into yoga for the first time? Is it for fitness? Is it what what are people seeking? I think people are just searching Mm -hmm. right now. People are just searching for something to make them feel better because we're so disassociated with so many things like our feelings, our you know, our bodies, like we're so pulled in so many directions. So they're searching and this seems to be like a different way. Oh, I'm going to try yoga. You know, someone else tried it, so I'm going to check it out. But um, I don't know. Usually physical is mm-hmm. what they say. <laughs> I came to get a good stretch. Yeah. And then does that, uh, I'm, I think I'm hearing it changes over time. The people come in for one purpose, maybe mm. they discover another. It definitely expands. I mean, 
it naturally does it. We had a few kids from USU come and they're doing a report on, you know, like a little study on yoga. They've never done yoga before. And they were asking the same thing, like, mm -hmm. what is yoga about? And um, I'm like, you just have to come and experience it. You can't really like say there's no like path. It just, it starts to happen to you and you start to open up and your heart starts to get a little more soft and mm -hmm. your mind starts to expand. And I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Emily Perry, uh, uh, what are can I, I can imagine concerns I would have. I'm not limber enough. I'm, you know, I, <laughs> I'm going to fall over in the middle of poses, you know, the, the postures, whatever. I don't know what concerns people have coming in. Oh, I think, you know, anytime you attempt to try something new, there's a little bit of nervousness around it. You know, you're self-conscious. You're worried that you're going to be the only person in the room that can't do anything. And what I find is that people quickly realize that yoga is really non-competitive. You know, you're really there to be with your body and to be with yourself and to take a moment to just pause and listen. And I think that that's one of the most profound aspects is that we actually carve out a moment to just drop in and just pay attention for a moment to, to move in a way that you can actually listen to your body and so that things that have been sort of buried might start to come up and you can start to see things and you can start to get a handle on things. And um, so people might come and they're nervous and they're self-conscious and, and then they realize, oh my gosh, it doesn't, you know, touching my toes is like the least of my, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's the last thing that matters yeah. about this practice. You mm -hmm. know, all you have to do is show up for yourself and, and then the magic happens. <laughs> mm -hmm. Jennifer Seiner, um, I was reading an article, a, a friend of mine sent me an article yesterday <laughs> in the Salt Lake Tribune. I didn't know this, uh, yoga being practiced in prison, at least the women's section, they're talking about transferring it over to the to the men's not only that but uh, certifying instructors there among the inmates and uh, one of the, um, the the inmates who had been certified as an instructor uh, said that uh, some of the inmates are really get in touch with past trauma really get in touch with and you know in the middle of the session start crying and they don't know the reason because the yoga has helped them get in touch with or closer to, to whatever that, that past trauma was. Absolutely. I, I find that the longer I practice yoga, the more I'm apt to cry during practice. And I think what Emily and Chantel have said uh, speaks to this, that we come to yoga for maybe a physical reason, but the challenge is not touching your toes. That's not the challenge, as Emily said. What happens is, especially when I teach, I teach without music, and so there's nothing else to do but be with your body on your mat and be with your mind. And that's actually the real challenge is we don't have very many opportunities where we still our bodies and still our minds for that period of time. And it can absolutely bring up all sorts of things, which in our everyday lives we can push away. We don't have to deal with because we have to fold the laundry or we have to go to this meeting. So we don't have to deal with those things. But when it's just you and your body on this mat and it's quiet, there's nowhere to go. You have to be with yourself. And so these traumas or these past experiences, grief in particular, those things do rise up. But then you if you stay there long enough, you realize they also fade away. Mm. 
And that's the beauty of the practice is recognizing that all of these feelings that we have, these things rise up in us, but they're ephemeral, they're fleeting, they also move through us. And that, of course, leads to healing. It's the mm-hmm. only way to heal. Mm-hmm. By holding on and grasping and, and, and keeping all of that and not acknowledging it, you just suffer more and more and you become darker and heavier. But if you can allow it to start to move through you, then you do, you heal. And so, I mean, I think everyone in the world should be practicing yoga, but um, it definitely makes sense to be doing it mm-hmm. in the jails and in the prisons, for sure. Well, in 2016, it was, uh, what, uh, 36 million. 28% of Americans have uh, practiced yoga at some t- time in their lives. But I want to return to the, the previous question, but uh, Michael Souter, what where do you think this is going? Um, you Gosh, know, 50%, um, 100%? Uh, I think yoga is going to change the world. And... Um, You know, um, the Prime Minister of India, Narendra Modi, he uh, petitioned the UN to establish International Yoga Day, which is on the solstice, the summer solstice. And so, like, millions of people around the world are practicing yoga. Um, It's just becoming more and more popular because, you know, the benefits are undeniable. It's Mm -hmm. just, like, so healing for all of us to do this. And one of the wonderful things about yoga is it's, like, such a vast and rich kind of tradition so there's yoga teachings about diet, there's yoga teachings about uh, chanting, about meditation, using mantras, things like that. And so it's just like such a rich tradition that you can do, you can start to do just a physical kind of practice, which is really a meditation for the body. But then, you know, it just deepens and deepens and deepens, <coughs> excuse me, as long as you uh, want to stay with it. Mm-hmm. So I think that it's just going to get more and more popular and I think it's just changing the world. Before we go to break, I want to return to this. We were talking about uh, in, in the prison. Mm-hmm. This not only applies to prison, but to uh, yoga, and you focus, and then you're able to let some of these things go. Mm-hmm. You, you've referred to this a couple of times as mm-hmm. um, a meditation for the body. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's really interesting. When I first became a yoga teacher back in the 70s, I started teaching in uh, prisons in Alabama. And uh, at the time, I mean, th- these were really scary places, you know. It was like really dark with bars instead of doors. And, and uh, boy, I went in there and um, just sat on the floor with my guitar and long hair, you know, <laughs> and started singing some songs. And so then we did some yoga and meditation. And it was so transformative. I mean, to this day, it's the most powerful experience of my life. It was mm-hmm. sitting with those guys for like a year and uh, just seeing them completely transformed. When I first went in there, I was so intimidated. There were all these big muscle guys, you know, and there I was. And uh, I don't know, I just felt like they just became these like babies that I was holding, you know, because they got in touch with their vulnerability and they got in touch with their pain. And, um, you know, so it's like when you're doing yoga, these kinds of things can come up, but I don't want to um, give the impression that like you just go into yoga class and suffer and you know, <laughs> sit with your pain um, right. because we, might because be that impression right? right right but at the same because at the same time you know all these healing chemicals are being released into your body and like Chantel said you walk out of the class and wow the sky is bluer and the green trees make you cry because it's so beautiful and so um, you know working through this trauma or past uh, pain or something like that, memories. It's not like something you experience every time <coughs> you um, go to a yoga class or something. It comes up sometimes. Mm-hmm. But it's mostly just a, you know, just a really healing, beautiful kind of practice. By the way, I, uh, uh, this is, I'm sure, my stereotyping, but uh, you know, if, if you get known as the guy who's going to the yoga class in prison, I don't know if that, uh, that's... <laughs> 
<laughs> look frowned upon. You're by, supposed to be tough, uh, right? Uh, is, you mean um, that's a misconception, probably as well. That what the yoga is too soft or something? Yeah, yeah it's your you oh. know you're, you know, you're, you're you should be lifting weights, right? If you're, yeah, yeah, and that's I'm I'm totally I'm trafficking in many stereotypes here. Yeah, there are those stereotypes. I've kind of dealt with them all my life, I guess. <laughs> you know, I mean, yoga originally was like practiced by male ascetics in India, and uh, it was almost exclusively a practice for males. And now most yoga classes are almost completely, not mm. almost, but, you know, 80, 90 percent female in the West are practicing. So I guess, you know, there can be. But, you know, now we have sports stars who are doing yoga. We have, mm. you know, musicians who are doing yoga. Obama was doing yoga on the lawn uh, of the White house i don't think trump is but uh you know it's um it's just becoming so more popular that those stereotypes are being uh you know they're going to be they're they're disappearing those stereotypes okay well it's we're over there for a break let's take a break and we come back i want to i'll start with the history of yoga i'll alert you michael Souter, and um i think emily perry you do some teaching the history of yoga as well well, I don't teach. I, okay. I leave that up to Michael. My, I leave it up to Michael. Okay, very <laughs> I do. Good. I do talk a little bit about it. So. Okay, great. Uh, a bunch, uh, a bunch more uh, questions here about uh, yoga. Yoga is becoming more and more popular, and uh, we decided to spend the hour on uh, this uh, today uh, on the program. Uh, so we have with us Emily Perry, director of yoga studies at USU. Chantel Garfin, um, owner of Transcend Yoga Studio in Logan. Jennifer Siner, who's USU professor of English, has been practicing yoga for some twenty years, and Michael Souter, who is USU professor of English. English affiliated faculty member uh, in USU's Religious Studies program and its Yoga Studies program where he teaches a course on the history of yoga. We'd love to get your question or comment on yoga, maybe your experience. Uh, a couple of ways you can reach us. You can email us to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com, or on Twitter at upraccess. More following this. On the next Radio Lab. <laughs> Confrontations. Punching, kicking. Face-offs. <laughs> I can't believe you just did that. What? Whoa. It kind of hurt. Throwdowns. It was a big blowout fight. She just starts attacking him. Lefties versus righties, sharers versus stealers, friend versus friend. Showdowns on the next Radio Lab. Saturday at noon on Utah Public Radio. This week on American Roots, we're the City of Angels, Los Angeles, traveling the freeways to visit clubs and cruise the neighborhoods, seeking music traditions of the other L.A. We'll also tour Capitol Records and talk with musicians from Long Beach to East L.A. to Compton and Bakersfield. I'm Nick Spitzer. Join me for American Roots from PRX. Saturday evening at 8 on Utah Public Radio. Colby Sorensen is 27. Charles Salzberg is 75. Ordinarily, they would not mix, but when they came into the UPR studio, they discovered their life experiences had led them to a very similar place. So I grew up in New York City originally, in Brooklyn. A, a guy I just fell in love with, he was so nice to me, a guy named Jamesy, probably the best athlete in the neighborhood. He was a black guy, loved him like a brother. Then when I was 13, we moved to Florida, and then I went to Tallahassee to go to school at Florida State, and it was deep south. I mean, I was just horrified. All I could think of was this guy, Jamesy. So I became a civil rights worker. Just being a naive, you know, white boy from Utah, just very little diversity. In my undergrad, I met one of my best friends named Luis and the other named Jose, and they were both dreamers. Leading up to the 2016 election, I saw a lot of threats to immigrants, some directly targeting dreamers. It bothered me a lot, and I wanted to kind of turn my anger into action. Our new series, One Small Step, premieres in September. 
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Yoga is growing in popularity in the United States. Um, there are 36 million practitioners in 2016. That's up from 20 million in uh, 2012. 28% of Americans have participated in a yoga class at some point in their lives. And we're talking about yoga, past, present, and future with Emily Perry, Director of Yoga Studies at USU, Chantel Gerfen, owner of Transcend Yoga Studio in Logan, Jennifer Siner, USU Professor of English, has been practicing yoga for some 20 years, and Michael Sauter, who's USU Professor of English, affiliated faculty member in USU's Religious Studies Program, and its Yoga Studies Program, where he teaches a course on the history of yoga. You can join this conversation, hope that you will, love to get your yoga experience or question or comment. The number to call is 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. You can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, uh, or we're on Twitter at upraxcess. Uh, so, Michael Sauter, I want to start this segment with the history of yoga. How, how far back do we go? Well, it's a good question. It's a really interesting question, and it's somewhat of a contested question. So, uh, <clears throat> for, for some years, you might go to a, a yoga class at a yoga studio and be told that, like, Surya Namaskar, which is a a sequence called the sun salutations is like 5,000 years old or something like that. And, um, but then about 10 years ago, a scholar, Mark Singleton, published a book called The Yoga Body. And he said that, you know, modern postural yoga, which is kind of like the term that scholars use for the way yoga is practiced in the West today, um, he, he made this argument that it really only goes back 100 years or maybe 150 years. And this was like this big scandal and nobody could believe it. And people were like all upset and yoga teachers were stopping teaching. And it was like, it's all a big sham, you know, <laughs> it's all a big... Uh, scam. And uh, so there has been a real interest since that book in really tracing the origins of modern postural yoga. So there's some really great scholars. Um, Jim Mallinson is at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London. And then Seth Powell is a Harvard uh, graduate student that is uh, studying the history of asanas. <laughs> and so uh, it's really fascinating. So as far as we know, yoga in the big sense goes back probably about 3,000 years. And, um, and uh, first, what the word yoga first appeared in this uh, ancient Indian uh, scriptural text called the Kata Upanishad. And yoga is defined as a stilling of the mind. And yoga was primarily a practice of meditation and a practice that would lead to uh, spiritual enlightenment. And so one of the most important texts that people look back to is the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, where again, yoga is defined as a stilling of the mind. And so as kind of a meditation practice, because, you know, our mind is always chattering and chattering and chattering. And it's like if we're working out with our arms, our arms get tired. So we put the weights down and we rest. <coughs> Excuse me. But with our uh, mind, you know, our mind gets tired, but we can't stop it. You know, and so meditation is this process of trying to calm down the mind, which calms the body as well. And so one of the most uh, famous sutras in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, which we could all say together, the second sutra in Sanskrit, with, which is Yoga Shchitta Vritti Narodaha, which means yoga is the stilling of the fluctuations of the mind. Mm. And uh, so for two, about 2,000 years, yoga was this practice of meditation. And, but it also included diet and you know, different ways of living. And then around the year of... 1,000 uh, asanas started coming in, partly through the practice of Tantra, which is a uh, spiritual system that 
really believes in uh, making the body holy, uh, kind of the divination of the body. So a focus on the body started coming in from Tantra and then uh, also some from some ancient ascetic practices. And so um, by around the 16th or 17th century, there were about 84 asanas. Oh, one thing I wanted to mention about the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. Sutras are like these little aphorisms. And there's 195 aphorisms in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, and only three of them have to do with asanas. And all three of those are seated postures for meditation. So there's a real interest these days in tracing the history of non-seated asanas. You know, asanas where you're standing or you're doing something else. And um, so they seem to go back uh, just a few hundred years. So it's kind of a recent development. Mm. And then the most important development for modern postural yoga happened in uh, a city uh, called Mysore in southern India by a teacher named Krishnamacharya. And he really focused on the physical aspect of yoga, largely because he worked with a lot of uh, sick and disabled people. And so he really focused on the body. And from his teaching and his students, some of whom came to America, um, this focus on the body really became uh, prominent. And I think that, you know, there are lots of like teachers or gurus in India that think, oh, that Western yoga, it's not real yoga. They just want to like work out and show off their body and it's a big ego trip and stuff. But um, but there's this um, one great scholar, um, Edwin Bryant, who said that, you know, this contribution that the West has made to yoga is bringing this meditation tradition to the body. So it becomes kind of a bodily meditation, which mm. is just awesome, I think. so. Uh, let me pause. I want to, I want to uh, get back to this and ask how, and you've provided me a couple of questions here, uh, Michael, how did yoga come to America? And apparently it uh, involves Emerson and Thoreau, but we'll pause that. Um, so you mentioned people with disabilities. So can people with disabilities participate in yoga? Absolutely. I, you know, there's so much emphasis on the physical aspect of yoga. And when you really start practicing, you recognize that it has less to do with the physical movement and more to do with, like Michael's been saying, the moving meditation, that it's a meditation. And that the physical body just becomes the, the focal point, perhaps, you could say, you know, of your meditation. So you can you can sit still and observe the various sensations that are going on in your body and that's yoga. You know, you don't have to do any kind of crazy movement that the practice in and of itself is just this, this, you know, practice of bringing your awareness and your attention to your body, to your breath, and, and that's all there is to it. And then if you want to add movement to that, then that's great. But if you have disabilities and you don't have the the capability to do those things, you can still practice. Mm -hmm. If I could just jump in. Um, yeah. So there's a really wonderful yoga teacher in the valley, in Cache Valley, uh, Haley Hayes. Mm -hmm. And so she works specifically with people with disabilities mm -hmm. and um, neurological kinds of issues. She did a master's in um, in yoga studies, or I guess I'm not sure what the uh, field was. Kinesiology and health science. Yeah, kinesiology science. Yeah, mm -hmm. and health science, where uh, she studied the effects of yoga on um, <coughs> working with uh, disabled people and their caretakers, mm -hmm. which is really interesting. Mm -hmm. And their caretakers. Okay, that can benefit from that, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Chantal Gerfan, um, <coughs> give me an example of the range of people that you've worked with with yoga. Have come to your classes and maybe you've even certified. Yeah, uh, I actually started teaching yoga to people at a physical therapy clinic. So it was like with recovery after they had like knee surgery or shoulder surgery, any back injuries, and more rehabilitation like after they had, you know, seen the physical therapist and um, 
the strengthening that happens can be phenomenal, you know, because a lot of times you leave physical therapy and then you just are pushed out into the real world. And so yoga can be like this, go between to help strengthen, you know, and give yourself the confidence again to like know that your body can support itself. Um, then from there, we there's chair yoga. So a lot of people can do yoga from just a chair. You don't even mm. have to stand up. And there's many different kinds of practices. Jennifer in particular teaches yin yoga. And the whole um, class is just lying on your mat. And you just are supported with blankets and pillows and bolsters. And it's very like meditative. And you're really opening up like fascia and joints. And it's so anyone can really practice or there's hot fast yoga too. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of different kinds of things. You just have to kind of find where your home is at or what mm -hmm. your body needs and you get in tune. You kind of usually need a little bit of both. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Jennifer Snyder, tell me about this. Y yin yoga? Is that what you tell yin. It's a yin class. Mm -hmm. I, I teach it on Tuesdays. And um, as Chantel said, we never even stand up. It's all done on the mats. And we use bolsters and blocks and blankets. And you use those bolsters, blocks, and blankets, all those props to support your body in these poses. Um, and that way you're not using your muscles. So it's the opposite of what we think of when we think of yoga in that you're trying to take the muscle out of the pose. And then physically what you're doing is you're allowing that uh, any kind of compression or constriction or stress to move into the fascia or the kind of colder parts of the body, ligaments, things that don't usually get stretched or get any attention. And... Um, the challenge in that practice is you hold the poses anywhere from 5 to 20 minutes. And if you've ever held any pose for 5 minutes, it's a really long time. Even if you're completely supported, it's not difficult physically. It's incredibly difficult mentally mm. because, again, you just have to be with your body. So there are different ways you can focus at that point. You can focus on your body, so the way that pose feels in your body. Or um, you can focus on your breath. That's a good anchor or a mantra, but you do these practices. It's a very, uh, yin is considered a cold practice, not a hot practice. Mm -hmm. And as Chantel said, we need both of those, both physically in our lives, as well as in all, in all capacities, all areas. Yeah. Um, I just want to add one thing about uh, <clears throat> the accessibility of yoga and how yoga, I think, is changing right now. So there's a very popular journal called uh, Yoga Journal. And, um, you know, for the last couple of decades, it's like, you know, every single cover is just like this beautiful woman who's like totally fit, you know, doing these uh, kinds of poses. And Jennifer and I uh, have taken a couple of yoga philosophy courses online with uh, Seth Powell, this wonderful guy. And um, but anyway, one of the other people, it's like it's online. So you meet people from around the world, teachers. And there's this great teacher who is uh, in California, and he uh, he has a studio called called Accessible Yoga. And so it's yoga for people who don't have perfect bodies. And, and so now I've just started noticing on Yoga Journal, they have, you know, people doing yoga on the cover who don't have a perfect body, mm. you know. And so I think there's this movement happening right now, mm -hmm. which is more open and welcoming that I think is going to be a really positive thing. Yeah, I think that is positive. Mm -hmm. uh, Chantel, you mentioned hot, fast yoga. Yes. Was, I guess that's <laughs> how it's just, you know, very apt description. Exactly. Well, at the studio we offer, it's like we call it hot power hour. So um, it seems to be popular among the students. And it's heated with, uh, I think, 
it gets to be like 95, 100 with more bodies, it's even hotter. And then we add humidity to it. So it really heats up your body. So through the movement, you don't have to heat up your body with movement. You're already hot as you go into class. Mm. So it opens up your body in a different way a lot more quickly. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like, I feel like it's yoga on crack a little bit does that make sense (laughs) it's like super quick and fast and so it's kind of the opposite of yin Mm -hmm. and it's good for people i think that maybe sit a lot you Mm -hmm. know if you're in class or you're studying and we need movement in our body that's how we physically like and mentally move through things so that could be the opposite of people that sit all day they really need that or people that are very active they need yin Mm -hmm. so it you know depends on your lifestyle what type Mm -hmm. of yoga works best. Just parenthetically, Michael, you mentioned traditionalists in India. Uh, uh, I'm guessing they would frown on hot, fast yoga, but I, I don't know. Well, it's, it's, uh, I, I'm not sure about the fast part, but, um, but hot yoga, I think originally came from Bikram, who was an Indian oh, uh, okay. yoga teacher. And I think he was trying to, uh, you know, let Westerners know what it's like to practice in India where it's hot. You <laughs> right, know? right. And so, yeah, that's, so that's kind of fun. Um, uh, I want to uh, return to Emily Perry. Tell me just a little bit about the uh, yoga program, USU. This is I, I hadn't even known that uh, probably other colleges have this as well, but uh, I didn't know that USU had it. Well, not many universities oh, have okay. it, actually. Mm-hmm. There are probably only about five in the United States that offer yoga studies, academic yoga studies programs. So I think Utah State's really progressive in in allowing us to develop this program here. So totally the, cutting edge, really. It's mm-hmm. very cutting edge, you know, it's, and, and it's really exciting that we, um, you know, we're seeing such success with the program. Uh, the number of students enrolling remains high, and, um, and they're really enjoying it. So the program is housed in the kinesiology and health science department, but we also have a number of classes through the religious studies um, program as well in the history department. Um, so it's kind of an interdisciplinary program. And right now we offer a minor in yoga studies and at, they can concurrently achieve their, uh, their teacher training certificate while they're going through the program. So it's, it's been an incredible opportunity for the students. And, uh, like I said, it's a really progressive cutting edge thing that Utah State's allowing us to do. So, mm-hmm. and, and Emily, <clears throat> Emily is actually doing her master's on, um, studying yoga studies programs mm-hmm. around the country and then designing this program for the future. So that she's actually doing a master's thesis on that. So. All right. Yeah. Cutting yeah. edge, cutting yeah. edge. All right. Yeah. Uh, let's take another break. When we come back, I want to learn a little bit more about the history of yoga. How did yoga come to America? And uh, Michael, you're you're teasing me with it. I'll tease the audience with this. Uh, interesting history that starts with Emerson and Thoreau moves into the 20th century with some swamis coming to the U.S. We'll we'll learn about that and talk more about yoga uh, with our guests, who include uh, Emily Perry, director of yoga studies at USU, Chantel Gerfin, owner of Transcend Yoga Studio in Logan, Jennifer Siner, USU professor of English, been practicing uh, yoga for some 20 years, and Michael Souter, who is USU professor of English, affiliated faculty member in USU's religious studies program and its yoga studies program, where he teaches a course on the history of yoga. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members in the Cash Arts 2019 through 2020 National Touring Season, offering season tickets for shows including Anne of Green Gables, The Ballet. Ticket and seating information available at cacharts.org. 
Stephen Dubner on the next Freakonomics Radio. It takes a lot to surprise IMF head Christine Lagarde, but it happens. You know what? There is one thing that totally blew my mind. Also, how Uber data can make an economist's cold heart sing. I have had a burning question for almost 15 years, and by using Uber data, I've finally been able to get to the bottom of it. It's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Thursday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Utah is home to breathtaking natural wonders and rigorous scientific research, and the issues affecting our natural world are important to the life of every Utah. That's why we're answering the question, so what? Science Utah is your home for all things science. Our team of science reporters, most of them graduate students from USU's Ecology Center, are updating you on the latest in science news and providing commentary on pressing issues. Because scientific topic, from air quality to our national parks and even gene editing, matters to Utah. Join us as we explore the world of Science Utah, available at upr.org, the UPR app, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. $16 billion spent on yoga and yoga products in 2016. That's up uh, from $10 billion in uh, 2012. 28% of Americans have participated in a yoga class at some point in their lives. Yoga is obviously growing in popularity. We're talking about it on the program today um, with Emily Perry, Director of Yoga Studies at USU, Chantel Gurfin, owner of Transcend Yoga Studio in Logan, Jennifer Siner, USU Professor of English, who's been practicing yoga for 20 years, and Michael Souter, USU Professor of English, affiliated faculty member in USU's Religious Studies Program and its Yoga Studies Program, where he teaches a course on the history of yoga. That's where I want to start uh, this part of the program. So uh, how did yoga come to America? Okay, well, um, very interesting history. So um, Emerson and Thoreau, our transcendentalist writers of the 19th century, uh, got really interested in Asian philosophy. And uh, Emerson wrote this poem called Brahma, which is almost a quotation out of the the sacred Hindu text, the Bhagavad Gita. The whole poem is almost just a quotation. And and Henry David Thoreau is the first American to ever call himself a yogi. So later in his life, I mean, he died at 45, but (laughs) later in his life, uh, he wrote a letter to someone and called himself a yogi. So they were very interested in yoga at the time. Uh, And that created some interest among others. Then in uh, 1893, a Swami named Vivekananda, who was a disciple of this, my favorite, one of my favorite gurus, Sri Ramakrishna. Uh, Ramakrishna sent him to the West to spread yoga to the West. And in 1893, he appeared penniless and went to the World Parliament of Religions, which was a conference that was being held in Chicago, Illinois. And supposedly he just electrified the audience and everybody was just like completely amazed and astonished with him. So he stayed in America for uh, some decades and was promoting uh, yoga here. Then uh, another super important person is uh, Yogananda, Paramahansa Yogananda, who published this book called Autobiography of a Yogi, which totally changed my life and the lives of millions. So um, 
it's just a beautiful book, a wonderful book about being a yogi. It's not really focused on asanas too much, but uh, on the other uh, spiritual side of yoga. But then in uh, 1924, there was this uh, anti-immigration bill passed, which uh, barred Asians from coming to America. I don't think that had anything to do with yoga. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, uh, but that, that really slowed down the interest in yoga um, because Indians couldn't come. But then, like one of the students of Iyengar, a woman named Indra Dewi, she came to America. She was a Russian uh, aristocrat who went to India and got interested in yoga. And so she was a student of Krishnamacharya. And um, so she w- she could come to the U.S. She wasn't Asian. So she came and opened up a studio in Hollywood and started um, teaching yoga to some of the movie stars. And so it started to get popular like that. Uh, like that. And then in the 50s, this was in the 40s, and then in the 50s, uh, somebody named Peter Hittleman, who was a disciple of this Southern Indian guru, um, Ramana Maharshi, came and he started a television show in the 50s. And this started um, yoga becoming better known. And then we had the Beatles went to India in the 60s. In the 60s, everything exploded. The Beatles went to India uh, in 1965. This anti-immigration bill was uh, canceled. So the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi came, who was the guru to the Beatles. And then uh, then we just had a kind of flood mm-hmm. of uh, teachers coming. And then uh, now we have what we have today. So yeah, it's yeah. really cool. Very interesting. I, I, I never knew it had a connection to Emerson Throw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to, we have two writers with us. I don't know if you ladies have, okay. Well, we had Jennifer Siner uh, has written memoir and other works and, uh, Michael Sauter is a poet. I want to start with you, uh, Jennifer Siner. Um, are there interconnections with your practice of yoga and, uh, I guess within, in, and your writing? Absolutely. I've, um, actually the book project that I'm just now starting is a series of essays that take inspiration from the study and practice of yoga. So um, I've moved in that direction. At first, um, if you look at my essays, if you look at my writing, you can see literally when yoga starts to creep into my work, both as a metaphor as well as just um, scenes where yoga makes a difference or matters. And a lot of it started when I went to India for the first time in 2014 2014. and at that point um, it was a really uh, powerful experience to go to India and to be there we were there for a couple of months and um, you can't as a writer go and have an experience like that where it transforms you and changes you and then not have that appear in your art Mm -hmm. either it appears deeply so only you know about it or it appears um on the surface, and a lot of my essays have started to address yoga specifically, talking about different ideas or philosophies out of yoga and weaving those into the essays along with personal experience. And now I really want to bring it all together because um, one of the things that yoga teaches you is that there is no such thing as division. Everything is whole. We're one being. We're all connected. And so any divisions we make in our lives, I think, create a kind of suffering. And so I don't want to create divisions in my art. And I want to bring all of it together because that's how I experience it in my life without division. And uh, one thing I was thinking about when I, you know, thinking about the intersection here, um, my perception of writing is that you have to be very present. Is that true? And oh, then, absolutely. And yoga as well. 
Absolutely. I mean, the ways in which yoga has changed me um, as a writer or changed me even as a teacher, what I do in the classroom, um, is, is largely, yes, about being present, um, about having an open heart, about learning to still your mind. And um, it's in those moments where we're quiet that I think any real learning can occur, any creation of art can occur. It's in those quiet moments, those still moments, where we recognize who we truly are, not the busy self we put on all day long, but that deeper, brighter, perhaps even divine self. And being in touch with that then, um, it can't help but manifest in every aspect of your life, including your writing and your teaching, mm -hmm. and the way I hope I'm a mother as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. Michael Sellers, same question. You're, is this... Uh, um blend with your poetry, uh, you know, help you in the process, I guess it probably subject matter as well. Uh, yeah, totally. I feel like um, <clears throat> my whole life is dedicated to yoga in every aspect. And um, though I, uh, I had a kind of falling out with yoga for about uh, 15 years and I became a Buddhist. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was when my first book was uh, written, uh, first poetry book. And so that book kind of has more of a Taoist, Buddhist kind of mm -hmm. flavor. Um, but then um, my most recent book, House Under the Moon, is very much uh, focused on yoga. And I was on your show for mm -hmm. that book, and mm -hmm. uh, somebody called in, wanted me to lead a meditation. Yes. <laughs> that was I worried about that because <coughs> I, was, I, was, I was envisioning five minutes of dead air for something. Right, like that. right. But yeah. you, did, you did something very brief. Kind yeah. of a yeah, mm -hmm. guided yeah. meditation. But anyway, so yeah, it totally uh, fills up my writing. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Uh, I want to uh, maybe uh, Emily Perry. Um, I imagine this leads over into, you know, or, or interconnections, you know, unity between everything. I'm curious, uh, Jennifer Seiner mentioned motherhood. Does this, oh my goodness. Does this affect your, <laughs> you as a mother? Every single minute of my day, <laughs> I feel like, I feel like I just owe so much to my yoga practice for, for the way that I speak to my children, for the way that I handle my children, for my awareness of when I'm not handling them in the way that I would like to, you know, to be able to, you know, yoga doesn't make you perfect. <laughs> it just helps you to kind of see your behaviors. And then, and then once you're seeing it, then you have this, you step into a space where you have some conscious observation where you can actually act on that rather than react you can respond with some sort of you know consciousness so i feel like not only as a mother but every single relationship in my life has been impacted by yoga and i know that there's a huge difference from you know before i started practicing and and now you know or or even you know the effects were there are some effects that are just immediate you know you 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 start to see things from a different perspective almost immediately because you're you're learning how to see yourself outside of just this combination of busyness and my you know thoughts and your physical body that you can start to kind of pull away from that and see yourself as like Jennifer said like a divine being and that's powerful so and that yeah. bleeds into everything that you do yeah similar question we just have a couple minutes left uh, Chantel Griffin I imagine this is it's not just the, uh, the the times in the studio. It affects right. your whole life. Oh, of course. Um, as a mother, it's definitely changed me. I have um, a lot more patience, I feel like, because I'm 
learning to love myself through my practice and it helps me to love others in that way as well. Um, the way that I run my business also too, it helps me make better business decisions. Um, I do it for, I guess, like high, making the community better. You know what I mean? Not for money. So the yoga studio opened because of that. Like I just wanted a space to let people come and feel safe and and I think that wouldn't have happened, you know, if I didn't have yoga in my life. So that manifested through, I don't know, my own yoga practice, I guess. Mm-hmm. And just the need to like share with others, like Michael said, like the whole world should do yoga. Mm-hmm. And we all would be better people if we spent a little time on our mat, a little more breathing space in our lives and loved a little bit more instead of, you know, caring about ourselves, but shared that love with others. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, that feels like a good comment to end the program on. Um, mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, so uh, we uh, uh, thank very much. Um, you've just heard there from uh, Chantal Gerfin, owner of Transcend Yoga Studio in Logan. Thank you Thanks, so much. Thanks, Tom. It was so fun. Uh, Emily Perry, Director of Yoga Studies at USU. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Jennifer Siner, USU Professor of English, been practicing yoga for some 20 years. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, Michael Souter, is a poet, USU professor of English, affiliated uh, faculty member in USU's Religious Studies program, its Yoga Studies program, where he teaches a course on the history of yoga. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, and also heard at upr.org. One afternoon, two Mormon missionaries visited the comedian Julia Sweeney. And they said they had a message for me from God. I said, well, please, come in. And they looked really happy because I don't think this happens to them all that often. I'm Guy Raz. Faith, belief, and doubt. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Sunday afternoon at 2 on Utah Public Radio. Hey, Lael, what's the deal with appetizers? You know, Jen, appetizers are those tasty little bites that whet your appetite for the main meal. Ah, so it's like our UPR segment, Bread and Butter. Tasty little radio bites about cooking, eating, and all the ingredients in between. We should invite the listeners to brunch. Good idea. Join us every Sunday at 11 a.m. for Bread and Butter, your locally sourced appetizer to the splendid table. Now there's a satisfying meal and all on Utah Public Radio.